Well, you guys are the best. Um, I, I really just want to pay honor where honor's due and just really, you guys have some really beautiful pastors in this church. You really do. And I just want to thank pastors John and Chris. I mean, I've, I've, I've known them for a long time. A couple of their kids were married the last time I saw you. Now they've got like a quiver full of grandkids and... Um, but I, it's just, it's really beautiful to, for someone that, that travels all over the place to find churches that, that are pockets of home. You know, I, sometimes I feel like a traveling wanderer and you sometimes don't feel even at home at your home, but then you find these really beautiful churches that you get to go to and you're like, oh, this feels like, this feels like home. So this feels like home, you know, and I'm so grateful for your kindness and you, you just your extension of belief in me. I, I'm not. I speak all over the place, probably sometimes more now than I do singing. I don't know why that is. I, it takes less effort to sit on the piano and, and uh, I mean, to speak than sit on the piano and practice with the team all the time. Um, and I think it's just the way God's doing it. I, it's not always that I do Sunday mornings. So it's so sweet that they asked me to kind of do your church services. My heart is, is I wouldn't even call myself a preacher. I'm like, I, I love to throw courage into the atmosphere. I love to just encourage people in the presence of the Lord. I, I just can tell you, I got wrecked by God when I was very young because I was in a lot of pain. And I was in a lot of turmoil and there was a lot of trauma and a lot of death around me. And I was fortunate to grow up in a, in a beautiful kind of Christian household, but it was super dysfunctional. <laughs> Just pretty normally dysfunctional and had to kind of carve my way out of religion to find relationship with Jesus. And once I found relationship with Jesus, I knew the difference between being religious and having relationship. And that relationship created a pursuit in me where sometimes in some of the conversations that I have with people, because I spend most of my hours during the day mentoring and raising up creatives and artists. And um, I live in Nashville, and so there's a lot of those out there. And um, artists and creatives wear our nerves on the outside of our body. And so we're super moody. And so I deal with a lot of super moody people all the time. And I, I, my thing is to just throw the line out to find out where Jesus has taken hold of them. Because sometimes I'm talking to them and I'm like, oh, I get it. You didn't get him in your DNA like I got him in my DNA. And I think sometimes we capture Jesus at the point that we capture him with the desperate need that we need him in the moment. And there was something about me that I just was like, I can't find my way out of a paper sack. Like I, I need you. And God met me in my darkest hours and he became light to me. And so I just, I just, I just think he's the best. I just really think he's like this cool guy that I get to hang out with that helps me parent my son. My 18-year-old calls him a snitch, and I love that because he dimes my son out all the time, and I just love that about him. And he, I mean, I've seen the miraculous of God literally um, so much in my life. And I'm gonna say this because I think it's it's powerful point to say everything that I've personally asked God for or that I have felt like God has told me is part of um, what he's going to give me I've never seen. So I've labored in prayer for years and years and years for things that God has not yet released to me, but I have seen him more than I ever thought possible in ways I never thought I ever would. And there's something about that, that when you're, 
when you're um, still at the altar crying out for something that you haven't seen, that you don't know, all you have to go on is faith, that you'll, that you'll, by faith you'll see that, regardless if it's in this life or the next life, I have had to actually surrender my all to the Lord. And it comes in waves. Sometimes you don't have to get back to the altar and believe and believe and believe, but I can tell you that it has actually propelled me. Not seeing the things that God has promised me has propelled me to love him more. How is that possible? You know, when I'm sitting with people who have left the church because somehow somebody displayed Christ to them in a way that now they're mad at God because of it. And, and that's the beauty of the church. We're supposed to be the hands and feet of Christ in here, but some of us do a really lousy job at showing Christ to people. So Jesus gets the bad rap because of your lack of representing him correctly. And so I've realized as the church is my home and it's the thing that God is writing back for that I love because I am the church, that my eyes are focused on Jesus all the time, not man. Because man's gonna disappoint me. But Jesus is not going to disappoint me, even though he hasn't given me yet the desires of my heart. He is better than I've ever thought anybody could ever be. So I, I want to declare that because I'm not just spewing that because it sounds great. Like, I, I, it's almost like this, um, this trembling invitation sometimes that I feel to people that just, that it's almost like this, do you want him? Like, do you want him? I, I, I talk to my worship students and my, my creative students about the progressive state in worship. Worship to me, this that I do is a, what I call an, uh, an extension or an overflow of what is already going on inside me. So that's just the extension of it. That is not what true worship is. I think true worship is, is running after the true worth of Christ and finding him accessible. And, and so um, Ephesians says how the love of God is so high, so wide, so deep, so long that, that humanity's mind can't even wrap itself around it, which almost gives us an out. It's like, just stop trying to figure it out. You'll never figure it out. But for me, it's like, yeah, but there's something in there and the revelation that, but there's more of it to have if I want it. Because it's so wide, I can go this way and I'll get more. It's so deep that I can dig down like it's treasure. It's so high that I can just keep, you know, running up the stairs to try to grab a hold of it. So I'm here to tell you today that the love of God is in this room. And if you want the love of God to meet you today, he'll meet you. Because his width and his depth and his breadth and his height is, is, is everlasting. And I just, I want to throw that out because that's my burn, my my spinal column to leave in the atmosphere. The burn that, that I talk about all the time is to throw courage. Although I'm going to probably read one of the most depressing books of the Bible. <laughs> Get ready, buckle up. Here we go. Many years ago, um, while I was on staff at a very large church in Dallas, um, the Lord started to talk to me about the book of Jonah. And I was like, I mean, he's kind of a bum, bummer, God. Why do I have to talk about Jonah? And he said, well, the church is experiencing what I call a, a um, Jonah epidemic. And Rita, you're going, to, you're going to end up ministering to people that are caught in the Jonah ep epidemic. So you need to go back to this book. And I honestly went back to the book and I'm like, I think the last time I ever read this story, it was on like Sunday school felt board, which I probably just fully dated myself. But you guys remember the felt boards in Sunday school? 
And, and it was really just the story of this guy who was swallowed by a fish. He was running from the Lord and disobeyed God and he got swallowed by a fish. And, and then we sing these, um, I, I think it was uh, JJ that was in the back or somebody was in the back singing the Jonah song from Sunday school. And I'm like, you, it, it's kind of like this mamsy pamsy kind of, we treat Jonah like, yeah, it's just this story. When honestly, this book in the Bible is almost like this massive warning sign that someone is flashing a light while the church is sitting on a railroad track and the train is bearing down on us and the voice of God is doing this saying, wake up, wake up, wake up church because there's a Jonah epidemic in the church and you need to be wide awake so that you don't fall prey to this kind of lifestyle. So I'm gonna, um, isn't that just like fun? Are you, we're gonna have fun today? So I'm just gonna start reading out of Jonah chapter one. Um, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amnishai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and he sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord." Now, Tarshish isn't my problem, and it's really not the issue in here. Tarshish is the furthest distance that Jonah thought he could get away from what he'd been called to. So let's open up the story with this guy who isn't an um, unfamiliar um, member of the Christian family. Like he's been called by God. He's a minor prophet, but called to prophesy some of the most incredible things. I mean, the Lord has asked me to, to witness to the Starbucks barista. And that's scary enough. But this guy, like what God is asking him to do is to go to a city of 120,000 people and tell all of them that God's going to Take them out because their wickedness has come before him. So it takes the guy three days to do that. So I, I don't want to build this profile of this, of this prophetic man who doesn't have a reputation. This is a guy who has a reputation. He has a voice. He has a gifting. He has an anointing to proclaim the word of the Lord. And God has spoken to him and says, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it. And so Jonah, all of a sudden, what he does is he goes to Joppa. So my question this morning is, how do you get to Joppa? Because when you get to Joppa to make a decision to fly completely away from your calling, something has transitioned from the day that you were called to the day that you got to the ticket counter. And we don't know the story until there's a reflection of it later on. But I'm telling you, all of us can say we have circumstantial evidence in our life. The warning sign here is, is that circumstantial evidence that's happening in your life is the enemy trying to drive a wedge between you and the presence of the Lord. It's happening all over the church. Last year, I thought I was going to just quit. I was like, I'm done. The amount of phone calls, the amount of people that I met with, my, my, I, I, I mean, normally, uh, I don't, my chin doesn't hit the floor. But my chin, I was just gasping because I couldn't believe some of the stories I was hearing of people completely leaving the faith or still trying to work in, in, their, in their, um, their called professions in the church while being completely 
unraveling by the kind of sin that I, I mean, I was saying about sight. Some of this stuff I had to look up on the internet because I just didn't know it existed. You know, I just don't, I just don't get into the dark web stuff. And I just was like, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, producers and writers of Christian music thinking open marriage is what the Lord's called them to. I mean, like, how do you get to Joppa? when you're called by God. And it's something we have to ask ourselves. Are we on the road to the presence of the Lord and to the love of the Lord and the, and the depth and the breadth and the height? Or are we on the road to some of our own destruction? And I know it's a warning for the church and it probably sounds super intense because I'm kind of intense, but I think it needs to be said. Jonah chapter one, verse four. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. And the captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lots fell on Jonah. And so they asked him, tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? Who is your country? What is your country? And from what people are you? And he responds and says, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of the heaven who made the sea that's out of control right now and the dry land. That's my God. So literally he just dimes himself out. Scripture, you know, uh, says later that he'd already told them that he was running from God. So you get this picture of him, the boat loading up from the dock in Joppa. And he's, you know, knocking some conversation around with some of the sailors. It's like, hey, what are you doing? I'm running from the Lord. Proud of it. I'm running from God. So they already knew, the sailors had already known that he had already talked about running and fleeing from his calling. And now he's dimed out on the boat because his disobedience is now costing the lives of all of these people on the boat. These people who do not know God, they are not Hebrews. So understand, God is... There's a couple points here because I, 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 the, the, question, the question really is, how, how do you fall asleep through a storm? Like, how do you get so despondent and so frustrated at God and his presence that in the middle of a storm, you fall asleep? I mean, I was asked to do one of those kind of silly worship cruises once where I guess you're, there's 300 of us on a boat with 2,500 other drunk people. It's basically... And we're in a little separate room worshiping God while everybody else is partying on the boat and getting drunk. And I said yes to this. And so at the time, my son was 18 months old. They put us in the cheap, the cheap beds in the bottom of the boat. And we went through the Straits of Florida in a storm. In a massive, massive boat. Way bigger than this guy's boat. And I was up all night with an 18-month-old as we were vomiting uncontrollably. You can't sleep in a boat in the storm. I'm just telling you. 
Something has to be really wrong with you to fall asleep. When God asked uh, Jonah to go to Nineveh, there's something that he says that's a clue here I want you to, to remember. He says, go to the great city of Nineveh and tell it I'm taking it out. Why does God call something great if there's still hope that there's redemption in it? Do you realize how many times the Lord has said, nope, I still think she's great. I still think he's great. I know he's just screwed up and screwed up, but I, I, I just, he's, just, he's my son. I think he's great. I still think he has a chance. You know, this, this book in the Bible is, I think maybe more about Jonah than it is about Nineveh, but Nineveh should be our highlight. Nineveh should be our highlight. It's the saddest part that one man that was given a job that was anointed by God now is so angry at God that he can't seem to follow through with this. And there's a storm going wild and all of these sailors on the boat are, are lost. Now, here's the thing I love about lost people. You don't have to try to figure them out. They're lost. You know what I'm saying? People get so undone. Christians get so undone about lost people in the world. It's like, yeah, they're lost. They act lost. What's the big whoop? They, ask, they act lost. They don't know how any other way to act. But what grieves me is if you're found and you're acting lost, what is the problem? Because I've met more found people that act more lost than the lost. I can take the lost. It's the found that are acting lost that I'm like, whoa, 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 wait. There's nowhere that that's in scripture. Well, yeah, but I think the scripture is really just a story. And I live in grace. And I'm like, hmm, I mean, I'm, I've been through this book. I, I, I'm pretty sure it's, it's, it's right on. And honestly, here's my, here's my stance. If I'm wrong about this, if, I, if this is all bogus information and I'm wrong, I'm just going down with the ship. Because I've already seen enough evidence in my own life that it's everything I need. So I'll go down with the ship. It doesn't matter. I've already given everything into it. You, you've got to understand that as the church, we are supposed to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And this boat is full of lost people and God's eyes are on all of those sailors. And he's looking over at Jonah saying, you can't take these guys with you in your disobedience. I won't allow it. And so they're, they're gambling or maybe it's, you know, they're, they're casting lots. And, and I, 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 last night I was kind of like, I mean, even like if you want to throw a Ouija board in there, it's like, who's the problem on the ship? Bing! You know, it's like Jonah, Jonah's the problem. Like the Lord dimes him out. No matter what they're doing, the Lord dimes him out. They ask him, he says, this is who I am. And it's this crazy, cra I mean, it's this crazy, crazy dynamic that I just am like, wow, God, wow, wow. How do we get to this place? How do we get to this place? The sea was getting rougher and rougher in verse 11. So they ask, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, replied. That to me is so narcissistic. And it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the man did their best to row back to land. These guys, I love these guys. But they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. And listen to this. Then they cried out to the Lord. They, were, they started out crying out to their own gods. Then they cried out to the Lord, please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard and the raging sea grew calm. And at this, 
the men greatly feared the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows for him. If we are to think that in our rebellion, God's gonna let his mercy slide on the loss that we're around, you got another thing coming. You got another thing coming. He will go out for, for those people. He will have his mercy on those people regardless and in spite of your rebellion. You know, we have to realize that our rebellion versus God's mercy is never gonna win. Never gonna win. You know, uh, I'm not gonna go into this um, part of the thing. I'm just gonna say it because if you can go back and read, Jonah has a prayer, he's in the belly of a whale and he says this prayer. And if you read the prayer, the prayer is all about the belly of the whale. It's not about, Lord, I'm so sorry for all of these conversations and the stuff that I hid from you. I'm so sorry about this. I'm so sorry about this. I'm so sorry about this. He doesn't say anything. He's like, your waves and breakers crashed over me. I was wrapped up in seaweed. It was really dark down here. I mean, it's like this momentary kind of, please, please, please get me out of this. Get me out of this. Get me out of this. But we know that there's no sincerity because of how the story plays itself out. So you can actually see the callousness of his heart and the revelation that are we crying out in the moments that we just need God to come without the commitment to absolutely change? I mean, think about it. How many times have you thought a conference could change your marriage? Or, or all the therapy in the world could change your marriage, but when you didn't ever walk through it and do the things that needed to be done to change it or to change the situation or to forgive somebody or to stop carrying offense, there, there's a process you go through. We can't just come to the altar and then get up and then come to the altar again and come to the altar again and come to the altar. And, and it just become this thing that we do without actually having it take root and hold in us and say, I don't want to keep going to the altar for the same old thing. I want to get up there and I want the Lord to change me because I want to trust the Lord and how he's speaking over my life. And these sailors end up just trusting God, which is what I love. Okay, so let me, let me keep moving on here. This little... Uh, Jonah chapter three says this, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Here it is again. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was, very large, was a very large city and it took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city proclaiming this. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, cut off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. And this is the proclamation that he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent with compassion, turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. What does true repentance look like? Jonah chapter three, verse four, Jonah began going on a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and then it will be overthrown. Next verse, then it invites believe God. No, um, 
you know, my, my, I don't know if I can do this because, you know, my, I was just raised in a really hard family and none of this like backlash of all these reasons why we can't trust the Lord and all these obstacles in our, our way. Jonah proclaims it and the next verse is they believed it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, according to scripture, this is like a city that wickedness and evil ways had gotten the notification of the Lord and God was ready to just wipe it out. But the moment the word of the Lord was proclaimed, the presence of the Lord entered the hearts of the Ninevites and they go like this. And then it reaches the ears of the king and the king rips his robes immediately, falls down in the dust, puts sackcloth on him and then he proclaims to everybody and all of the ducks and the birds and the, and the dogs and the kitties and all of the things that he says, don't even feed your cats. Everybody's on a fast. Because God may look down at us and say, hey, they're worth saving. I mean, we've got to become Nineveh. We've got to become Nineveh. This is our hope. Jonah, not so much. Nineveh, this is our hope. And that is what actually stuns me about this book, is that it was 120,000 people that caught the presence of the Lord and one disobedient prophet who couldn't do it. I mean, it's pretty wild when you think about it. This isn't just a story of a guy swallowed by a whale. It's a really sad story of what it's like when we become so frustrated that we begin to hate and, 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 and just, it grades on our every nerve that, that God is who he says he is. Jonah chapter four, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong and he became angry because now we're going to illuminate what happened from here to Joppa. This is where it's at. When Jonah, this, to Jonah, this seemed very wrong and he became angry and he prayed to the Lord. And this is what he says, guys. I don't know if you've ever read this book. This is wild. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? Bing, 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 bing. There you go. There is a picture of what was transpiring before when Jonah was so frustrated and so offended and so offended and then so rebellious and then so bitter that he just grew into this person of hate toward God that when God asked him to do the thing that he was called to do Jonah was like I'd rather die than serve you I mean to think that that's possible is hard for me but last year, I saw it all over the place. I saw it all over the place. Shockingly saw it all over the place in the church. That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die. I mean, come on. But the Lord replied, it, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down in a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. I think he was waiting there to see if maybe God would do what he wanted God to do. Do me a favor, God, and take him out. That'd make my offenses feel really good right now. Do you understand what I'm saying? Then the Lord provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade to his head and ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, the Lord provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. 
And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint and he wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? You know, he turns to Jonah and he says, is it right for you to be angry about the city? And I think this next one is, wow, how petty. How petty have you become, kid? That you're so worn out by the fact that a leaf can't even shade you. And the last words of Jonah is this. The last words of a prophet anointed by God is this. It is, he said, and I am so angry, I wish I were dead. And the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great third time, city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. And then he just gives this little beautiful thing. And also the animals. I love that about the Lord. I don't know if you've ever seen that in that book, but I'm like, oh, the Lord loves, a, he loves his goats and his cows. I think that's precious just in that little point that God is a detailed God. He's just a beautifully, beautifully humble, detailed God. I, I, I don't know where we're going as a church, but I do know that when I read this, I still feel hopeful. Amen. You know what I'm saying? And, um, and I, I'm aware every morning that I get up that there's, that there's a strong man on the throne that loves his people. And he's never left that throne and he's not about to leave that throne and he hasn't lost a war and he's never lost a battle yet. And we have the assurance that we will never with him be left alone. And, and I, I, you know, Caleb can come and play if he wants to come and play as we close before Pastor John comes up and leads us in communion. I, I had an encounter that kind of detailed this in, in our family's life um, my sister Roxanne is 14 months um, older than I am. We, we shared a room our whole lives. She um, is one of the most precious human beings I've ever met. There's, it's almost like you don't meet people like my sister. She's still very pure and naive and in this godly, holy way. She just wanted to be Ma Ingalls or Laura Ingalls Wilder. She wanted to farmstead, you know, raise chickens and goats. And, and she did all that. She married the love of her life. And he was a good man of God. And together they had five children and they built their own house. And he was a truck driver, so he was gone a lot, but they homeschooled their children and he helped out with co-op. And, and he, you know, he was just a really amazing guy. He was, a, he was a godly father, a godly man. And for about 15 to 18 years, it just seemed like, you know, there the things that started to happen were just, it was just surreal to us as a family. She, she finally called and said, something's wrong. He, he's starting to drink. He's so anti-alcohol. And, and he comes home and he's half drunk. And he just starts verbally abusing me. And, and he's really hard on the kids. And we were like, what? Like, what's going on? What's going on? And it got worse and it got worse and it got worse and it got worse. And, and one day... The 18-year-old, which was their oldest um, son, was holding the three-year-old, which was their youngest son, on the front porch while my brother-in-law packed the truck and told his oldest son that he believed the Lord had told him that his mother was a harlot and he had to leave her. 
and just out of his mind. And he left, he filed for divorce. He sold the house out from underneath her, put her on welfare. She was living in a two bedroom, low income apartment with five children um, in, that, uh, in that city. While he um, never paid child support, but filed for joint custody and then never um, ever wanted to see the kids. In fact, she was telling a story to us once about being in a little taco joint, um, you know, uh, where you, you, know, you, you can eat at the little bar stool at the window looking out of, of the little taco joint. And all her children were there and the, their father walked in and, and my sister leaned over and she said, that's your father. And, and one of his sons said, dad, dad, do you remember me? Dad, dad. And once he heard his children's voices, he turned around and walked right back out without even acknowledging that they existed. We were devastated. We were devastated. And, and the, the, the thing was, what, what in the world could possess this guy to do that? Like, I mean, they were, they were each other's best friend. Like they, they, this was a dream marriage. Like what in the world? And we found out later that he had been really heavily involved in pornography and I believe tra human trafficking at truck stops and his mind just began to deteriorate. I don't know how deeply involved it was, but it literally eroded his mind. And one day on Mother's Day, almost 10 years ago, um, he walked into the house of a woman that looked a lot like my sister with a seven-month-old baby and he robbed her. And, and he, he slapped her really hard and his hat fell off. So the police came and they did a DNA to see if he was in the system. He wasn't in the system. And um, the woman just felt like, you know, I think he's going to come back. And they were like, no, no, no. Her husband was a CrossFit trainer. He was a firefighter. He came home. I mean, they were like, no, it was probably a vagrant from, from the property a couple yards away. Like, it's, you don't have to worry about that. But at 1 o'clock in the morning, my brother-in-law returned in a demonic rage. And long story short, they could not subdue him. Wasn't full of alcohol. Wasn't full of any kind of drugs. It was full-blown absolute rage and the husband could not subdue him called out for the wife she grabbed a knife in the kitchen and ended his life in the foyer so my 18 year old nephew had to id the body in the morgue and our family was just leveled especially for those five kids and it was a hard long journey as the enemy tried to take each one of those five kids out which I'm, I'm here to tell you, they love Jesus, they serve Jesus, and they have their own testimonies that they stand on. But God has done a miracle in our family with it. In fact, there were letters that were sent out to all of us siblings, there were six of us, and he had done this last thing where he said, if um, you don't apologize to me, it's just crazy talk, crazy talk. He had threatened that he was going to do something. We ended up finding out after his death that at my niece's wedding, three weeks after his murder, he had planned to take the whole family out. I don't know how you get to Joppa. But my family knows how someone gets to Joppa. A man of God who let his mind erode with the world and with evil things. There was so much that we had to combat with. And I went to a church, I was invited to a church in Seattle and where they live and my nephew ended up showing up to the church. He and his wife came and I just ended up preaching this message and um, did an altar call and um, 
You know, he texted me later on that night and he just said this, which I thought was so profound. He said, Aunt Rita, thank you for tonight. He said, I want you to know I don't want to be Jonah like my dad. And I didn't tell his story at that particular night. He just said, I, I don't want to be Jonah like my, my dad. I want to be Nineveh. Aunt Rita, can I be Nineveh? And I said, yeah, buddy, you can be Nineveh. And as we close today, and I pray for you, that is actually my, my cry. You know, there may not be any Jonas here. And all of us in a lot of ways are Jonas when we start, right? Called by God. But I want to know here before I pray, who wants to be an Nineveh? Doesn't, doesn't mean that you're, you're struggling to a, a, a large degree. Maybe just that you're like, yeah, I've got some questions for the Lord. I've had a rough season. Yeah, I, I need to like figure out why I can't get God to answer my prayers. Yeah, I, I can feel this tension with the Lord sometimes and I don't know where that's coming from. If that's you tonight, I want you to stand up to, this morning. I want you to stand up and just say, I want to be Nineveh. I want to be like the king of Nineveh. And I want to rip my robes down and I want to put sackcloth and ashes on and I want to say, I'm coming back, Lord. It doesn't matter how hard it is. If you're in here this morning, before I pray, I want you to stand up. If you want to declare this morning, I want to be Nineveh. Because I'm telling you, there's Nineveh all over the church. There's Nineveh all over the church. And the grace and the mercy of the Lord is that he runs to Nineveh. He runs to Nineveh. As you stood up, the Holy Spirit runs to you. Jesus runs to you. And with his kindness, he covers you. And he says, yeah, you're a great city. That's what you are. You're a great city. That's what you are. Holy Spirit, in this room right now, I ask that you would surround these people. God, would you surround them with compassion, with mercy, and with victory today? That whatever they're facing in their households, whatever they're facing, whether they be broken marriages or infertility or financial problems or relationship things, job problems, prodigals, raising kids, whatever it is, God, would you please just come surround them with affirmation, light, acceptance, and greatness in the name of Jesus. And let us become Nineveh. Let us become a city that can be changed by God, rearranged by God, proclaimed by God, that even in our state, you still love us anyway. We worship you, Jesus. Thank you, God.